0: 10. If you don't have your own copy available, there should be one there in the back of the pews for you. Luke chapter 10. We're going to be reading from verse 1 through 20 this morning, uh, just so we can maintain a little bit of the context as to what's going on here. But we began last week by looking at the Lord's instruction to the 70 disciples that he sent out ahead of him to declare that the kingdom of God had come near. He gave them a clear mission. He gave them a clear message, and he gave them specific cities to travel to, those cities that he himself was going to come. But this week, we're going to see the two possible responses that those cities could make as his messengers made their way through them, and how those responses would have eternal consequences. Then we're also going to see the proper perspective that the disciples were to have as a result of this, this being their first short-term mission trip, and I'm not sure we're actually going to make it through there this week, but we'll see where time allows. But let's read our text this morning to get uh, our bearings, starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to do so. Luke chapter 10, verse 1 of God's inerrant Word says this, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wagers. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, for which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Just pray that it would instruct us, that it would draw us nearer and nearer to you, that through its truths, we can be confident In everything you have said, that your promises all come true, and that we can depend upon every word that you have inspired. God, just instruct our hearts this morning, help us to learn more about you so that we can honor you and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If you were to interview people and ask them whether or not they believed in God or not, many would still concede that, in fact, they do. But sadly, what seems to be increasing over the last decade or so has been the appearance of the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. Those who have no religious affiliation or, or at all, and they identify as either being atheist or agnostic. Now, this has been supported and encouraged mostly by our highly secularized culture at large, from entertainment, including Hollywood movies and the news media, to academia, including our public school systems and universities, to the scientific community where modern man needs not a god to understand his existence. Even big-name celebrities are coming out as atheists and seen as being reasonable and rational people. For example, one television advertisement for a secular organization aimed at keeping a separation of religious activity out of the government featured Ron Reagan, the son of the 40th U.S. president, and he cheekily and sadly encouraged you to support his organization And he says at the end of that ad, I'm Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. Famous Las Vegas magicians, movie stars, comedians, all seem to give credibility to having a disbelief in God. But although their numbers are increasing, by and large, the majority of Americans will still say that they believe that God exists. One of the most recent surveys that I found estimated that that number is somewhere to 70, 75% of those they interviewed say that they believe in God. And they would probably tell you that they are spiritual, but not religious. They pray to God, but they're not actually sure if he hears their prayer or will answer them at all. They turn to him in time of need and and trials, much like a, a genie in the bottle. But beyond that, They want him to stay in that bottle until he is summoned. But if you would ask people what they thought about Jesus Christ, some would express some sort of fascination with him. Certainly they're fascinated with him during Easter and Christmas time, which is why we see predominantly large bumps in our attendance at those uh, seasons. But some would say Jesus was a, a wise teacher. Perhaps they would say he was a prophet, as the the Muslims do. Some see him as a pivotal figure in history who was a catalyst for social justice. And others see him as a, a political figure who was used to bring about the good of society and as one of the greatest humanitarians that ever lived. But even few still, ladies and gentlemen, are willing to stake their lives That Jesus Christ was none other than God incarnate, the image of the invisible God, the Savior of the world who was born of a virgin, the Holy One of God that lived a sinless life and was crucified on the cross of Calvary, then after three days was resurrected and seated at the right hand of God. Few are willing to accept that He alone is the means of salvation from sin, that He alone is the means to peace with God, and that He alone is the source of eternal joy. Few are willing to acknowledge Him as Savior, Lord, Master, and the King of Kings over every single aspect of their lives. Few are willing to deny themselves and take up their own cross and follow Him into the path of obedience. Because there is absolutely no other way to follow Jesus Christ than all in. There is no middle road available. There is no lukewarm affection for him allowed. There is no superficial sentimentality permitted. And there is no way to simply come and pay your respects to him on a Sunday morning and then live like the devil the rest of the week. Because it is one thing for you to be in this building this morning. But it is far yet another thing for you to be in Christ. But for those of you who are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, I'm calling out to you right now. I'm calling out to you to double down in your disciplining of yourself for the purpose of godliness I'm calling on you to watch your heart with all diligence because out of it overflows the springs of life. I'm calling on you to wake up from your slumber like Peter, John, and James on top of the mountain during the Transfiguration and open your eyes and once again look to the glorious Christ as your greatest joy and your greatest treasure and once again be enamored with your Savior because we are all susceptible to spiritual decay. We have the evidence of scripture to attest to that for us in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. 5 of those 7 churches were in such a state of decay and 2 of them were so far gone that they were in jeopardy of utter rejection. But these 70 disciples that we see we saw last week, they were all in For Jesus. They were willing to do whatsoever that would bring about the most glory for God. They were willing to go out as lambs in the midst of wolves and face persecution if necessary because they wanted to obey the one who called them the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave them a missional perspective in verse 2 when he said that the harvest was plentiful but the laborers were few. He instructed them to make prayer priority and take this burden onto themselves and to beg God through prayer to rise up people to go out and proclaim the gospel. And yet as they prayed that prayer, they themselves were willing to be the very answer to it and go out into the mission field. He warned them of the potential persecution that could arise because of their message. There would be hostility and potential danger. But then he also comforted the disciples with the promise of provisions. They wouldn't need anything at all because it would all be supplied to them, whether it was food or shelter or money to travel on. They were to go with the gospel. But not only was the lack of provisions for the disciples in helping them to be dependent upon the Lord, it would force those people living in those various cities to make a decision, a spiritual decision that would have eternal consequences. They would be forced to decide whether they would accept or to reject the 70 disciples' message. A decision that would result in either peace or peril. Now, first of all, we see peace in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 says, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Now think about this. These 70 evangelists would have been strangers in every town that they visited, and they were to go around from house to house in that town as royal messengers of their king. And depending upon on that house, how it would respond in that town, the message would determine the relationship they would have with the king. They weren't to call down fire from heaven, but they were to offer goodwill from God. They were to say peace to the house, which would have reflected a familiar Hebrew term in the word shalom. It really means may God be with you. In other words, they were to look for someone receptive to the gospel message. They were to seek out people who were looking for the consolation of Israel, just like Simeon was in Luke 2.25. This wasn't just a polite greeting they were giving them, but it was a gracious offer from God to those who would welcome the good news. The benefit of peace was determinative from the reception. And they weren't to waste time on the rejectors which is in why in verse 6 it says that that peace will return to you. I remember the testimony of a friend of mine named Fred Wright who passes a church in Florida, who prior to coming to Christ was at his home one day when he heard a knock at the door. And as he went to answer it, he saw it was the same guy who had knocked on his door before a couple times over. And Fred wasn't saved at the time. He was Catholic, uh, and he was ready to throttle this guy and just pummel him and tell him where he was to go with some few choice words. But as Fred opened that door of his home, he told the guy he said, "Look, buddy, you got 60 seconds to say what you want to say and then I'm slamming this door in your face." And he said that guy started to give him the gospel in that second in that 60 seconds and Fred said it was like the lights had come on. And he said he let this guy talking kept talking for a few more minutes. And then eventually he said, hey buddy, come inside my house and talk to me a little bit more. And then eventually he had his wife come in from the kitchen and said, Irene, come listen to this. And then the next thing you know, over the next few years, Fred's selling his house and he's going to seminary to be a pastor, to which he is still to this day. But on that day, peace had come to Fred's house because... Fred was divinely prepared and willing to listen to the gospel message even in that 60 seconds. And so as these disciples, these 70 disciples are going to seek out houses that would listen to their message of peace, God's peace, they were also to be content with whatever was set before them for food and content with whatever accommodations were provided. Now, this was a means to distinguish the false teachers and philosophers who would go around and travel and constantly look to make a buck and try to take advantage of as many people as they possibly could by looking for better food and better lodging. But the disciples, they were to set up base camp to distinguish themselves from those greedy teachers, false teachers, by eating and drinking whatever was set before them. And if you ever want to see a greedy false teacher today, all you got to do is turn on supposed Christian television, right? They are on there trying to bilk you of your money and everybody else so they can buy themselves their new jets and their multi-million dollar houses, but their message is antithetical to the gospel. They're all alive and well people. But in verse 9, he tells them, heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. They were to give a visual, tangible confirmation that the gospel had indeed been revealed to them. The miracles confirmed the message. And so they were to say that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, it wasn't like these were the only words that they would speak to the to the house owner or whatever, or they were the only words spoken by the disciples as they went on their way. They didn't just speak this one sentence and then go about their merry way. But to a well-taught Israelite, this would have been an announcement that the Messiah had arrived. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Because ever since Genesis 3.15, there has always been a future eschatological hope of a coming Messiah, there was an expectation that there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent, and would also be the seed of a woman. But that seed of a woman would later on be designated as a seed of Abraham in Genesis two twenty two eighteen. Then we find in Genesis forty nine ten, it specifies that that redeemer would be from the tribe of Judah. And then in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, we learn that that Redeemer would be a descendant of the house and the line of David through Nathan the prophet. Because he says there to David, essentially, that when you die, I will raise up offspring from you and I will establish his kingdom. And so for a Jewish person willing to open the door to these disciples and to hear that the kingdom of God has come near was a willingness to hear that the long awaited messiah the one who would bruise satan on his head had finally arrived it was the good news that sinners could be delivered from satan's kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son as colossians 1:13 would tell us it meant that the coming of righteousness, peace, and joy and the Holy Spirit as Romans 14, 17 describes it. But what about those who would reject it? We see peril to those who reject the gospel message in verses 10 through 16, where it says, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to your, our feet We wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. People who reject the gospel message from these 70 disciples were to do so at their own peril. And he gives them instructions about what they are supposed to do to a city unwilling to listen to their message. Because it will be the Lord himself who has just been rejected by the Samaritans back in chapter 9. So he tells them, he says, don't slip out quietly. He tells them to make sure they go out into the streets, and this going out into the streets would would have been more like a marketplace, the town square, where everybody would have gathered. And so they were to give them a spiritual object lesson by shaking off the dust off of their feet. It was a testimony against that town that they were not considered clean any longer, and they were comparable to a Gentile. It was a symbol of exclusion and condemnation. They were to no longer consider yourself a people of God because now divine displeasure rests upon you. In fact, they are to tell them to be sure of this very thing. The kingdom of God has come near. But notice that it emits the near to you as it does in verse 9. The kingdom of God will continue on with or without you. It's coming regardless of your response and it cannot be stopped. And to reject the gospel, the message of the gospel from the messengers of Jesus, will bring about the gravest of judgments. He says, I say to you, meaning that the judge of all the earth is about to speak an important truth. And if you're a Bible translator, he's saying, hey, you want to put this in red type, right? I say to you, it will be more tolerable in Sodom than for that city. The worst... Of the ancient cities would be Sodom. It would be the epitome of vulgarity and unrighteousness, and it would be it would fare better than the city that rejects Christ's messengers. The city that had fire and brimstone rained down from the sky that consumed every living thing in Genesis nineteen would be better off than the city that rejects the gospel. You want to talk about shock value? This would have been reprehensible to a Jewish person to hear this. But then he adds a couple more Old Testament cities in that list, just in case it wasn't enough for these hearers to understand how grave this is. And that was Tyre and Sidon. Both of these towns were seaports, but they were notoriously Wicked cities in the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah and Ezekiel both had prophesied that judgment would come upon them. But if you would have asked any Jewish person, Hey, name your top five wicked cities, these would have been in it. This would have made the tops of the list. Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. But then Jesus expresses a deep and saddened dismay over cities that had already rejected him. He says, woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida, Two Galilean towns that he had preached the gospel to, and he had performed many, many incredible miracles there. But nonetheless, he says that the wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon would have been in a state of repentance and contrition if they had seen what you had seen. Given the light that was revealed to you, Tyre and Sidon would have more spiritual sense and more discernment than you and would have wept over their sin. And then in verse 15, he asks a rhetorical question of his own city, as Matthew 9 describes it, of Capernaum. And just as quickly as he asks it, he just as quickly answers it by telling them that the self-righteous inhabitants of Capernaum they will be cast down into hell. In fact, the ruin of that city predicted, the ruin that was predicted for the people of that city came upon the city itself. So bad, so much so, the devastation was so severe that the site of Capernaum was in question for centuries by archaeologists. It was wiped bare. But verse 16 This is the crux of the passage. This is where he says, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. In other words, what he's saying is that as I send you out to speak for me, keep in mind you are actually speaking for God. You are an ambassador for God. Because when you speak for me, you are speaking for God, and when people reject me, they are rejecting God. Jesus said to the hostile Jews in John eight forty two, If God were your father, you would have loved me. For I proceed forth and have come from, the, from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. In John 15, 30, 23, he told the apostles, He who hates me hates the Father also. In 1 John 2.23, he says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. To say that you believe in God or love God but reject Jesus is a damnable lie. To say that you believe in God but don't believe in Jesus will get you a ticket to eternal damnation. You will never enter heaven with either a rejection of Jesus or an indifference to Him because to reject Jesus is to reject God. To have an indifference to Jesus Christ is to have an indifference to God. That is why it is so important for us to have a proper Christology because to diminish Christ in any way is to diminish God. But do you realize that you today are an ambassador for God Do you realize that you are a visible manifestation of God's presence in this world? You say what? Me? This is what scripture reveals to us. The triune God lives in you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a few verses. In John 14:17 Jesus said, "I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper." that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Then in a few verses later, in John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So here you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, living in you. Is that not amazing? 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. In Galatians 2.20, you have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Ephesians 2.20, you are being built into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. In Colossians 1.27, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. 1 John 4.4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 4.13, by this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. This is an amazing, incredible truth, is it not? So what you need to realize is that when you go out into this world and you share the gospel and you do it with prayerful dependence upon the Lord and you speak that truth in love coupled with that and they reject that message, they are not rejecting you, but they are ultimately rejecting God. Should it grieve you that your family members or whoever does not accept the gospel? Absolutely should it stifle you? They should never ever share the gospel with anyone because they have rejected you, what you're saying to them about Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Because the triune God has taken up his residence in you. Matthew 28 ends by Jesus saying that he is with you until the end of the age. You are God's ambassadors. You are His representatives for His kingdom. And you and I are here to represent Him to a lost and dying world. Do you not see that this is one of your greatest privileges you have on this earth right now? Is this not a startling reality that you and I as believers have been united with Christ and the triune God has taken up his residence in you and that as you walk into Meijer or Kroger or your workplace or wherever you're at, that you are a representative of Jesus Christ? This world is not our home. This is not all there is. We are passing through We need to remove the blinders that have been plaguing our eyes and our minds that this world is all there is and that we are just to live this American dream and work our brains out for 30 years and then sit and soak in the lap of luxury in our retirement. But we are here for the good pleasure of the Lord and for His glory and not for our gluttony. We are here for His fame, not ours. We exist to bring many sons and daughters to glory by faithfully proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ to our world and that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. What would this church look like if we actually started to feel the weight of this on our hearts? We'd look different, wouldn't we? What, if we, what would we act like beyond these walls if we would actually let these truths resound in our minds that we are actually ambassadors for God? Ladies and gentlemen, we have work to do. For some of you, you need to go. It's time for you to go far away and preach the gospel to those who have heard, never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. I saw a statistic In Singapore, I think they send out like 3% of their population of their church out for foreign missions. In the United States, the typical church sends 0.15 of their members out for missions. Some of you, it's time to go. You need to go far away and preach the gospel to those who have never heard of the name of Jesus. Some of the others of you, you need to give. It's time for you to let go of the things of this world and do an inventory of your heart and see where your treasure is being stored up. And then for others of you, you flat out need to be broken in this. And I don't want to pretend that it's not even me. Maybe I need the brokenness. Matthew 5, 14 and 16 says that you, beloved, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and gives light to all are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. People are dying every day. And they are either on their way to heaven or they're on their way to hell. And so I leave you with these questions this morning. What will you do with the light that's been given to you? What will you do with the message that you've been given from your king? What are you willing to give up in this life? so that others may gain eternal life. We do real good at building towers of self. Let's go out and build the kingdom of God by telling others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that our hearts would be broken in this. That we would not cling tightly to the things of this world. That we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, help us to go from here into our workplaces, into the places that we shop, into the places that we do business, and be ready to share the gospel to this dying world. Let our hearts feel the weight of this, Lord. Let us do so so that we may bring many sons and daughters to glory. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for this body of believers. And we just pray that we can go from here honoring you, glorifying you with our lives, and ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us, the hope of Jesus Christ. Amen.